Hey there, folks. Welcome to another Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. As always, I am Stephen Craig. I am your host and author of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. Holy Toledo, it certainly has been an interesting week. Um, thank you for joining us. It's uh, it's great to have you here. Um, as I just alluded to, it, it has been an interesting week. Uh, if uh, I hope you got a chance to listen to the podcast last week. If not, um, get a chance to uh, to read the print version. Um, last week's article was called uh, Shame on Us for Not Shaming and certainly um, evoked a lot of uh, feedback on the old uh, the old Facebook and other social media platforms. A lot of it over... Uh, what exactly do we mean by the word shame? Um, and uh, and certainly uh, received its share of feedback, both positive and negative. And um, you know, it's funny. I um, I was listening to the Conan O'Brien podcast, uh, Conan Needs a Friend, which, by the way, I, I think probably these days Conan right about now does need a friend. Um, but in any case, the uh, it was I was listening to the Conan podcast because he was interviewing Neil Young, and I and I just find Neil Young to be such a enigmatic and interesting um, figure, um, both music musically speaking as well as uh, philosophically speaking. He's just a, a really entertaining guest um, and incredibly thoughtful. And uh, Conan was talking to him about uh, feedback regarding his performances and. You know, Neil said that you know when he puts out uh, when he puts out a new album or he does a live performance, there are always going to be people who have their their opinions, and and especially in this day and age of uh, the internet, we have the, it, it, on the one hand opens up the opportunities for people to share their feedback. It particularly has opened up an avenue for people doing so seemingly without um, without consequence. There's that sort of whole anonymity. Um, and uh, people like sort of uh, feel more comfortable um, being, uh, I think, reckless and, um, and and lending towards personal attacks. And um, but regardless, Neil talked about how um, he's learned over the years to embrace all of it, to embrace uh, the feedback in either direction. And last week was certainly a test of that for me. Um, there were a lot of folks out there who were um, pretty adamant about their opinions, and, and I embrace all of it. I, I loved the dialogue. Um, I do, you know, where it gets into the nature of uh, people, uh, some of it uh, devolved into some of the personal aspects of it, and that's always disappointing to me. Um, it's disappointing because when, when you write uh, a column like this uh, as part of your vocation, your hope is to stir thought. And, and to provoke people and challenge their critical thinking, um, and uh, and you love the dialogue, including including feedback that's that's not uh, positive, that cr- critiques your ideas, that um, that uh, that likewise come back and, and argue about the points. When it when it devolves into personal stuff, you're like, oh, that it's disappointing. That's not something that I necessarily take to heart. Um, but it's just disappointing in the sense that you're like, oh, I. I really enjoy and appreciate engaging in a discussion about the ideas that are involved. Uh, but when it comes about, becomes about me or anybody else as a person, it just doesn't really, 
it does, doesn't really hold much intellectual value. So in any case, uh, this week a little bit different, and I wanted to delve into a topic um, that might seem to be on the forefront of everyone's mind and yet a totally somewhat different spin on it, and that is uh, our military spending um, and our federal budget as a general whole. And um, the most obvious avenue for that might have been uh, talking about the war in Afghanistan and our pullout or our withdrawal of troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, to be honest, I am so torn and mixed um, on the issue of Afghanistan on the one hand. I I certainly feel like it could have done better, uh, been done better. I felt like Biden uh, and the rest of his staff uh, botched uh, a good portion of how they handled it. Um, but I, I find the criticism really interesting and politically motivated, you know, especially from people on the far right who... Um, you know, it was essentially the, the Biden was essentially just following through on the exact same plan that Trump had announced, you know, while he was in 2016. I'm oh, sorry, in 2000, uh, in the last couple of years. Um, and so, you know, to sit there and criticize Biden for pulling out of Afghanistan, when we should have, you know, probably we probably should have um, accomplished our early onset goals and then gotten the hell out of there like 20 years ago. Um, at this point, we we either had to pull out at some point or we were going to be there in perpetuity. And so, I, but how, uh, the man, the management of that and where it could have been handled better is just, it's not my, uh, it's not my line of expertise. And to be honest, I, I didn't think that I had anything else to, to add to the amount of, uh, commentary going back and forth on both sides. I, like most people, I feel like it's been highly politicized and, uh, people, retreat back into their, you know, their, uh, general corners of things, um, you know, right and left. And, you know, the left wanted to defend Biden, uh, when there was probably some reasonable criticism to be had. Uh, and the people on the far right, of course, wanted to use it as an excuse to bash Biden, uh, which I thought was hopelessly misguided and short-sighted. So, um, but this week, what I really, you know, when I, what spurred all of this thought was um, I started thinking about a quote um, that's in the piece by, by Elizabeth Cooper Ross about the nature of love and fear. That essentially everything in our, every aspect of our emotional lives comes down to those two emotions. Love brings us closer, it pushes us forward. Um, and fear makes us retreat and, and focus in on ourselves. And it seemed to me that that dichotomy of emotions, that, that, that schism between the two was incredibly manifested within the federal budget. And in particular, in regards to our continued adherence to military spending. Uh, and so with uh, no further ado, this is put your money where your heart is. Um, by the way, before I get into actually reading the column, I highly recommend uh, it does. Um, I'm going to allude to a number of uh, various uh, charts. If you get a chance uh, and you're listening to the podcast, I know a lot of you, uh, I, I know personally, I listen to podcasts either when I'm on my bike or I'm driving in the car. Uh, not exactly a great time to like be pulling up my phone and looking at the column. Um, go back and take a look at some of the um, some of the empirical data that I included with this column. Um one of them, and I want to be really clear on this, uh, there have been, uh, there's a chart going around on the internet 
uh, which suggests that military spending uh, accounts for like 50 or 60 something percent of the federal budget. And that's a really skewed figure. And I, I don't pull that kind of bullshit. It would have helped my argument in this case. Um, but it's just bullshit. Uh, it's completely um, it's completely skewed data in that it's military spending accounts for 50 to 60 percent or something like that of the military of the federal budget if you only include uh, discretionary spending and not mandatory spending. Mandatory spending includes things like um, Social Security, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Medicare, so on. Um, and so uh, when you actually take all federal spending, um, both discretionary and mandatory, uh, the defense budget represents about 16.2%. Uh, so just as I said, if you see that chart floating out there, um, this is another good example of where people can use statistics uh, to sort of be manipulative and uh, and deceptive. So, and, I, and I, as I said, I just don't pull that crap. I'd much rather be, I, I let you know, after all, flipping column is called truth in a thousand words or less uh i'm not about to start getting into that kind of nonsense so this is uh put your money where your heart is if you really want to know what a particular society values take a look at their federal budget oh we can say we value this and value that but in the end it comes down to one of my mom's favorite sayings put your money where your mouth is thanks mom in other words, it's all well and good to say the politically correct thing and suggest that we believe in protecting our nation's national resources or educating the next generation of American youth. But if you really want to see where our priorities lie, follow the money. Because if you take a glimpse at the pie chart included above, as I said, see the column, you might just come to a starting conclusion. As a country, we seem to value war, machines of war a whole lot more than we do people. Groundbreaking psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross once stated, there are only two emotions, love and fear. All positive emotions come from love. All negative emotions come from fear. From love flows happiness, contentment, peace, and joy. From fear comes anger, hate, anxiety, and guilt. It's true that there are only two primary emotions, love and fear, but it's more accurate to say that there is only love or fear, for we cannot feel these two emotions together at exactly the same time. They're opposites. If we're in fear, we are not in a place of love. When we're in a place of love, we cannot be in a place of fear. I think it's safe to say that our federal spending represents that we come from a place of fear more than we do from a place of love. At first glance, you might point to the chart above and suggest that military spending only accounts for 16.2% of our federal budget, but consider for a moment just what that means. Given that the federal budget stood at $3.8 trillion, we spend, on average, a bit over $600 billion annually on military spending. That's about one in every $5 you sent to Uncle Sam going directly to the military. In comparison, in 2019, we spent a combined $752 billion between federal, state, and local funding educating the 48 million elementary and secondary school children. So just to make that clear for all of you listening at home, that means that we spend as a nation about $600 billion plus, it's actually a bit more, 
600, over $600 billion on defense, military defense spending, and only $750 billion, just $150 billion more, educating the entire country at every level. That includes local, state, federal, all of it. So as you can see, we allocate almost as much funds to spending, as much uh, funds to defense spending as the rest of the world combined. But our spending on education as compared to gross domestic product is essentially average when compared to the 32 other OECD nations. These are, you know, the, essentially the 32 westernized nations. As you can deduce from this data, we spend a heck of a lot more money on defending ourselves from perceived threats than do our counterparts around the world. By comparison, the United Kingdom spends approximately 5% of its federal budget on defense. Germany, barely more than that. In fact, at 3.2%, the United States spends a higher percentage of gross domestic product on the military than any other nation except for Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Israel. I know that there are people and organizations out there that would like to do nothing more than to harm American citizens, but just what are we so afraid of? Do we really want to spend almost as much defending ourselves from the boogeyman of existential threats as we do on educating our children for the future that awaits them? Do we really want to continue operating from a place of fear rather than love? And by the way, as I was thinking that argument through the other day, it occurred to me that if we, when we think about all the lives, the military lives that we lost in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then we counter that versus the number of people that we might have saved from potential domestic terror, domestic terror threats, would, did we really have a net gain? Did we stop by having those military operations did we really save as many lives from acts of terror as we did lose American men and women, servicemen and women? I am not sure. I want to be clear that I am not talking about how we financially support the fine men and women that bravely serve our country in the armed services. Quite the opposite. I have always taught my children to take the time to thank military personnel for the unbelievable job they do in protecting our freedoms every time we encounter a person in uniform. But that gesture of thanks pales in comparison to meeting the needs these families have. Or as my mom once again used to put it, put your money where your mouth is. Of that federal budget pictured above, only 4% goes to veteran affairs. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that American taxpayers will spend $2.4 trillion on the Iraq and Afghan wars, with $39.5 billion just in defense contracts for Halliburton alone. And yes, that is the exact same Halliburton run by Dick Cheney right up until the time he was vice president. And if you think that he like stepped down and no longer benefited from all those defense contracts in Halliburton, that it wasn't like his buddies that took over running Halliburton and thus you know funneled all, a lot of that money to him, yeah, good luck with that. Meanwhile, the Watson, Insti Watson Institute estimates it will cost approximately $2.4 trillion, the same amount as the wars themselves, to care for the nearly 3 million service members that have served in post-9-11 war operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. These brave men and women have suffered from countless physical injuries, often leaving them incapacitated or disabled. Even more, 
Many of them returned with PTSD that has compromised their vocational opportunities and even more so, the sanctity of their personal lives. But in a tragic expose of our faulty priorities, the Watson Institute similarly found that, quote-unquote, although the U.S. has promised care for veterans throughout their lives, the magnitude of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans' costs is grossly understated in government projections. There is no provision set aside to cover these future obligations, and thus the U.S. risks shortchanging its veterans. I want to repeat that last part of it to you. And thus the U.S. risks shortchanging its veterans. We find all the money to pay for the stealth bombers and everything else and to send these young people over to war to protect our freedoms, but we don't somehow or another find the money to take care of them when they come back? Sadly, there are plenty of folks out there, largely on the right, who would tell you that entitlements are the bane of the U.S. fiscal crisis, that helping out folks that are less fortunate is what is draining the federal budget. But the reality is, and again, the statistics, and the if you actually start looking into the budget, it all backs all of this up. The reality is, is that the most bloated budget lies squarely on our adherence to continued military spending. At this point, the Pentagon and defense contractors like Halliburton have become your drunk uncle who keep on pestering you to borrow more money you know they'll never pay back. But the truly tragic aspect of all this is that we continue to operate not from a place of love and wanting to help our fellow human beings in need and the children we purport to care for, but rather from a place of fear perpetually devoting our resources to protectionism rather than growth. The result is akin to spending all your money on a safe to secure the possessions you can no longer afford. Instead, let's start to put our money where our hearts are, with love for the people that truly make this nation great. All right, folks, thank you very much. I am, uh, I am so pleased that you were able to join us. It, uh, again, I am... Uh, I am just really pleased to have all of you here. Thank you very much. We will be back next week with another episode of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. Until then, peace out, y'all.